Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the Ashley Madison hack gets personal, the Android stage of fright patch that doesn't cover all the holes, and turning a KVM into a surveillance appliance. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, our answers, and a rockin' roundup. All that and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 229 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on August 27th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should really go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. Welcome back. It is good to see you again. Yes. Did you have good travels? I did. Good, good, good. Well, Alan, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing about that throughout uh, the episode. And you know, Mm -hmm. while you were gone, turns out the uh, security industry, the IT world, all the (laughs) sysadmins out there, they didn't take the time off, admins. They didn't take the time off, Alan. Things still happened. Uh, And one of the things that happened was, I I think this is during our off time, was this Ashley Madison hack. Uh, we talked a little bit about it. I just think, a little bit, okay. Before. Yeah, okay. Uh, but we didn't have the details we have now. Yeah, we have um, some new details, though. And it's kind of interesting to be watching all of a sudden this, uh, you know, security theater stuff. Uh, it just takes on a different uh, dimension when it's not, you know, your password for adobe.com that gets taken. Right. But it's something information maybe, that you maybe really, really, really didn't want to get yeah, out there. Yeah, the kind of thing that, like, where people are like, I don't have anything to hide. I don't care if they're listening to my... Well, this is the kind of thing maybe some people did have to hide, did, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, like, uh, even though in the long term, I'm sure that the, uh, the IRS um, download your tax data API abuse was a bigger problem, uh, this one got more traction just because... You know, it's something people cared more about than their tax information getting mm-hmm. stolen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Krebs has quite a bit of coverage on this, and so does everybody else. And yeah. Quite a few people just have opinions on it, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, uh, according to security firms and a review of several emails that were shared with Krebs, uh, it looks like extortionists are already seeing easy pickings on the leaked Ashley Madison user database. You know, they're already uh, flipping through there and looking for. You know, high-profile people and, and targeting them specifically. Right. Uh, but then there's also you know typical trend jacking type stuff. Some scammers get a hold of the database and just start sending spam emails to everybody. You know, well, I got uh, it, what was that one email I got the other day? It was like a demand for a shower blow job. It's <laughs> like what? Really? Yeah. That you know, it seems like this is too hot of a target not to exploit because people are super yeah. paranoid. Because if you're a member of the site, you've obviously heard of the news by now. Yeah. Ooh. Exactly. Well, and even if you hadn't, you all of a sudden got a lot more emails than you usually did uh, of from like various other sites trying yes. to email you saying, yeah. "Hey, you know, sexy girls over here," you know, targeting all the the type of people that would have signed yeah. up for it. I've been getting. I got a. I, we've been talking about it on Tech Talk today, and I got a couple of notes in my Tech Talk today inbox for people like, uh, "Do you want me to forward you some of these scam emails I've been getting?" Like, I'm like, "No, I don't want them. I don't want them." And but uh, we didn't want to know that you had signed yeah. up for actually. <laughs> oh yeah. No, they already told me that part in the mumble room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much so. All right, and, and of course, Alan, this is the kind of thing that you got to figure is going to be perfect for a phishing attack. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, or just other phishing tap, uh, but also just 
your regular trend tracking scams. And, you know, if you, someone who signed up for Ashley Madison is the type of person that will follow a link looking for <laughs> nudes of a celebrity or whatever. Right? Oh, wow. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> or, or uh, an Ashley Madison like clone site that promises to be secure. Right. Or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's like, much. you know, are you embarrassed by what happened to Ashley Madison? Come to our secure site. It's like, what? <laughs> Yeah, uh, so Krebs heard from uh, Rick Romero, uh, who's an IT manager at VFIT Services, which is an email provider in Milwaukee. Uh, He said he's been building spam filters to block uh, outgoing extortion attempts against others uh, from rogue users on his service Mm. uh, and kind of has a a sample he could share with Krebs of what some of the scams look like. Interesting. Yeah. Apparently, there was an individual, Mac, who received uh, an extortion attempt, an Ashley Madison user who agreed to speak about the attack on condition that we use only his first name. Right. uh, Said he's uh, loosely concerned about future extortion attempts, but not especially uh, this particular one because, you know, it was kind of quickly put together and probably sent to a lot of people rather than, you know, researching each victim and and trying to uh, really get them by the short hairs, as it were. Uh, Max says he's more worried about uh, targeted extortion attacks that are against him specifically. Mm-hmm. He says uh, a few years ago he met a woman via Ashley Madison and connected both physically and emotionally with the woman uh, who is married and has children. Oh, yeah. As a father of several children of his own who's been married for more than 10 years, Max said his life was uh, would be incredibly disrupted if the extortionists made good on their threats. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Uh, here's uh, a here's a they have a sample of the email he got the scam yep. email it says uh, unfortunately your data was leaked in the recent hacking of Ashley Madison and I have your information if you would like to prevent me from finding and sharing this information with your significant other send exactly one point zero 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 one bitcoins approximately two hundred twenty five dollars USD to the following Bitcoin address sending the wrong uh, amount means I won't know it's you and who paid. You have seven days from, recip- from receipt of this email to send the BTC, Bitcoins. If you need help locating a place to purchase BTC, you can start here. And he, you know, then the email goes on with yeah. the link. That, what's interesting there is, unless this guy was the very first one, then they didn't do it right with the number of Bitcoin, right? Like, if it was 1.0001 for the first guy, there's a two for the second guy, there's right. three for the next. I doubt it. Then, that would, then, then they would be able to track who paid what. But that one just, yeah. either that was the very first guy or no. all the emails went up with the same number. Mm. And They're just the, taking money. They're not tracking anything. Yeah. Uh, but worse is that because the data is leaked to lots of people, um, you'd have to pay off every extortion. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, if it was the people that stole it and they hadn't posted it publicly, then you could have maybe a little bit of assurance mm. that they would not be able to, that they wouldn't come back. But, you know, even, even if you did pay them off and they were only people, they could just come back a month later and be like, hey, I want more money. And then more and more until you're out of money, right? Yeah, I mean, this is That's first, how extortion works. This is like one of our first attempts we've seen. I bet, I bet it gets a lot more sophisticated after this. This is like, you know, they're, now they're going to whittle it down to people that actually maybe would be really, really, really bothered by this and maybe go after them specifically. And I would assume get more sophisticated at some point. This seems really basic. This is the first step. Yeah, this is just spam everybody on the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, Early anyway, stuff. Guy, low-hanging yeah. fruit stuff. Uh, so the guy that is talking to Krebs said he used a prepaid credit card for his subscription, mm. uh, but that the billing address on the prepaid card ties back to his home address, kind of defeating the purpose of the prepaid card. Yeah. Now, generally, the, reason the prepaid card is so that, you know, if it gets stolen from the database on a site, they don't get any extra money out of you. Uh, but, you know, if you are going to use it online to shop, you need it to have tied to your address. So, uh, But, yes, it seems like you would want 
you know, another separate prepaid card not tried to any address or something. You know, one that you buy at one of those payday loan shops that's all shady or whatever. Uh, just so that it doesn't tie back to you at any way. If you yeah, can, right? yeah. With cash. <laughs> and then, you know, I think, you know, I bet too that maybe the motivation there with a uh, separate card was it's really easy to cancel my payment. And so if I need to easily and quietly cancel payment to Ashley Madison, I just cancel this one thing or something like that. Yeah, it might or not if even... it gets stolen, it doesn't. Right, yes, that, yeah. of course. But yeah. also, it doesn't go on the credit card bill that my wife would see. Yeah, oh yeah, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was more about that probably than exactly. about Exactly, of course it was. Yes, of course future. it was. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, this is, unfortunately, extortion attempts like the one against Mac are likely to increase in number, sophistication, and targeting uh, because, you know, as people have these databases for longer, they're just going to go through and, and actually start researching these people and, and seeing how badly they can screw up their lives in exchange for some money. Uh, they say the leaked Ashley Madison data... Uh, could also be useful for extorting U.S. military personnel and potentially stealing U.S. government secrets, right? Somebody, you know, work at Lockheed Martin on that list and you're the Chinese government? You oh, know, for maybe, sure, yeah. maybe they can steal some files for you. There's quite said, a, there was quite a bit of, uh, I think, government officials on there. They said there were 15,000 emails that ended in .mil, okay. uh, not counting all the, uh, you know, politicians and so on and just other people that work in things related to the government and maybe didn't use a government address and so on. Yeah. It seems a little weird to use your .mil email address for this. Seems a little inept. Ah, but at the same time, they also point out that just because somebody's email's on the list doesn't mean they signed up. You know, lots of fake signups were done as well. I suppose so, yeah. Uh, you know, sites like that don't usually uh, verify the email address before they create the account or whatever, right? So it's very easy to go to one of those sites and sign up with a fake name and a fake email address. Uh, of course, I don't know how you log back in repeatedly after that, but anyway... Um, According to The Hill, uh, the U.S. Defense Secretary Ash Kusher said uh, in his daily briefing Thursday that the DOD is investigating uh, the leak because of the number of military addresses on mm. it. Uh, I believe it's Ash Carter. Uh, oh, sorry. <clears throat> yeah, uh, yeah. of course they would have to if enough military addresses were on there. I guess they would have to look into it, wouldn't they? Yep. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, some of those accounts on there are, you know, That's embarrassing, as much as though. 10 years old. And so... You know, I imagine some of those email addresses don't even work, but uh, the ones that do, you know, some people will be like, oh, I don't even remember ever doing that because mm. it was so many years ago or whatever, right? You know what I think the most embarrassing thing is, and it's not even so much about, I mean, it's definitely going to be embarrassing, especially for some of these service members if this investigation comes knocking on their door. But I think the other thing, the other aspect of this, and hopefully this will be the thing that stings Ashley Madison so badly that other corporations just want to protect their own butt that they are, have better security. But what I think is, coming out from this leak, and I can see it happening in other leaks too, is you're getting actual real information about what the service was truly like behind the scenes. And one of the mm-hmm. things that's coming out is that essentially there was no women on the site. Yeah. There's 12,000 uh, yeah. active women estimated on the site completely. Like, that's yeah, embarrassing. They actually logged in and used the account. Uh, and, and yeah. Uh, whereas they claimed what was like 10 million users or something. Yeah. And so, you know, when you get this, when, when you get this kind of data out in the public, people can take a look, and, uh, and now we can see... They had right. 5.5 so million women in the database, but only 12,000 active accounts. Yeah, and there's a bunch of uh, evidence about, you know, bots creating accounts and, and things like that. And, but also, you know, I can see scammers creating an account on there uh, just to the point of convince some guy to meet me at this address or whatever and then sure, rob him yeah. Or, yeah. or blackmail him or whatever. Entrapment uh, of some kind. Yes, all that kind of thing. Uh, but also... 
that yes, <laughs> you know, I think that might be the saving grace for a lot of the people that are on that email address database is that they will never have actually hooked up with anyone <laughs> because they were they couldn't find any women that would actually answer on the site. Right? <laughs> Yeah, it's such a it was such a it was a, such a joke of a service. That's the actual saving grace of its users. <laughs> yeah, it's like there are some people like Mac who actually managed to successfully use it because they found one of the very small number of women that were signed up on it, and mm-hmm. they happened to be in the same area mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. But uh, you know, it seems like quite a few million of the people, even if they logged in quite a bit, uh, wouldn't have actually <laughs> been able to find anybody to have right. an affair with. Yeah. Uh, what would be more interesting is if uh, if the database leak actually included like. How many times the person logged in, or how, how at least how recently they logged yeah. in? Yeah, yeah, or or any kind of information about how many accounts they how many accounts they connected with or anything like that. Any of those kinds yep. of details would be really juicy. Yes, you know, if you have the whole database and could figure out this is how many times this person logged in, this is how many emails they sent, and this is how many replies they received, and you could probably be like, oh look at how many uh, interesting, you know, this guy. <laughs> Sent emails to a lot of women, but didn't get any replies. I tell you what, between uh, between the Home Depot breach, the Target breach, uh, the Chang's breach, the OPM breach, and now the Ashley Madison breach, if you had somebody who was had a, who had activity across all of those places, you get a pretty good picture of what that person's lifestyle is like. You know? yeah. <laughs> uh, well, because that's that's kind of the interesting thing is most of those breaches, like Target and so on, what you didn't get was a list of things they actually bought. Mm. Which I think that would be a bigger privacy concern than just the credit card number. Mm-hmm. But most of the times, the attacks against you know, uh, where the attacks against Home Depot and Target and so on were about getting the credit card number mm-hmm. to make money. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Ashley Madison one wasn't about that. Right. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, they actually didn't get credit card information from Ashley Madison. It doesn't sound yeah. like they did. No. Yeah. It seems like Ashley Madison might be an example to hold up about how to properly protect the credit cards. <laughs> really good example for anything else but you know what i mean yes i do any other thoughts on this particular story mr Uh, quite a bit there's a bunch of extra links uh you know there was uh some local papers finding you know uh people that work for the city or government or whatever on the list yeah um i don't think i have a link for it but i remember reading somewhere that they there was a suicide that might have been linked to it as well uh somebody found their name on the list and Got overly worried about it, maybe? I don't know. Uh, the other interesting one was uh, John McAfee, who's yes, I was kind of known for a bit of a nut job. But, yeah. you know, just look at, you know, we talked about him before when he was hiding in South America. Yes, yes, and yes. There was a was dead fine. body. and Anyway, uh, he thinks that it was an inside job from a woman that worked at Ashley Madison and was sick of the site and the type of people that used it and so on. Yeah, McAfee cites research involving the wording of the leakers' manifestos, the attacker's intimate knowledge of the technology stack at the company, as well as his own expertise and reliable sources within the dark web, which he says, have yet to fail me. So, Um, there you go. Well, detailed knowledge just means that they maybe attacked it for an amount of time to be able to look around or whatever. Yeah, But, you know... uh, those are some interesting conclusions, and the evidence seems to support them. Not that that's actually conclusive, but, you know, it's, it's a theory. McAfee, uh, McAfee uh, says his conclusion why it might be a woman, and, and the Fortune article says, warning, this part of McAfee's analysis may rub some people the wrong way. <laughs> it says, he cites the attacker's use of the word scumbags and her apparent predilection for Valentine's Day as, decided, as decidedly feminine. That's really where he gets the idea that it might be a woman. He says, if well, that does not convince you, then you need to get out of the house more often, he says. <laughs> I love this guy. Yeah, he's he is gone. a 
<laughs> he's the Donald Trump of the security world. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. Yeah, um, this guy but, is this guy is the Donald. <laughs> it's just, yes, uh, but at the same time, um, you know the the motivation of the attack and a bunch of those kind of does suggest that it might have been a woman. But you know, it's entirely it's hard to say. You know, people can be motivated against. Uh, that kind of behavior by religious things or any you i know, tell you the truth man i hate valentine's day so i might you know i just pretend it doesn't exist that's i tried to do that too but it always backfires yeah. oh boy all right that's an interesting uh, but then there was one uh, the other thing that got breached here was actually the some of the emails from the inside the company like the ceo and, and stuff right yes uh, and so krebs has an interesting tweet saying where uh, the only <laughs> thing potentially of interest uh or useful from the Ashley Madison CEO's inbox are clues about former employees who may have had an axe to grind. <laughs> uh, but also, um, there's one exchange of emails where, I think it was the CTO or somebody at Ashley Madison found a security vulnerability in a competing site mm. uh, and scraped their entire database. Yeah, I saw this. Yeah, and so uh, around that time, Ashley Madison was actually looking at buying the other site uh, and incorporating all of its users or whatever. Um, and uh, it was interesting to to see some of what happened there. Although the emails don't ever get to the point of saying whether the CEO ordered the other guy to uh, steal the database or not, or to do something to the other site or not. Yeah, I probably wouldn't put that in email either. Right. It's just the beginning of the discussion is there, so it's kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's kind. Of, you've already gone far enough, really. Right. Yeah, that's true. That is very true. But yes, that's why, you know. Encrypted IRC is, is good to use mm. for, uh, for business instead mm-hmm. of email. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or hell, even but, Snapchat. Yes. <laughs> yep. Well, no. no. I'm just joking. I'm you just, you I'm want just something joking. that's encrypted that you actually trust. It, it's a Hillary, it was a Hillary Clinton joke. Um, uh, all right, Mr. Jude. Any other thoughts now on that story? Uh, not, not anymore on that one. That's, uh, I think we've beat that horse enough. That, that, well, that Ashley Madison story has just kept on rolling for a couple of yep. weeks now, and it's just getting crazier and crazier. All right, well, then I'll tell you about something that's crazy. You ready for this? No contracts and no early termination on your cell phone. I'm talking about Ting, my mobile service provider. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Ting is really, truly mobile that makes sense. You only pay for what you actually use. They just take your minutes and your messages and your megabytes, and they add them all up in whatever bucket you fall into. That's all you got to pay. They got the $6 for your line, so each phone is $6. You want one phone or you want 20 phones, it's $6 for each line. That's really, really straightforward and simple if you're a small business or if you're a family or if you just want to try a couple of different phones. That is unbelievably elegant, and it scales so simply and so beautifully. And to manage all of it, they have a really, really good dashboard that I've used for everything. In more than two years, I've been a Ting customer buying new devices, transferring devices, deactivating devices, setting limits on data, naming them, paying bills, changing address, anything like that I've been able to do through the Ting dashboard. And it's kind of nice, too, because they don't have to go to all that work. They have a really awesome customer service. If you call them at one ting ftw anytime between 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. on the East Coast time, that's where Alan lives, then a real human being will answer your phone, and they'll talk to you, and they'll solve your problems. Other nice thing about Ting, they have CDMA and GSM services, so you can get whatever is more powerful in your area, and a f- SIM, you know, like the Nexus 5 and some of the other devices have multiple SIM capabilities, so you can sw- swap to a CDMA or GSM SIM, and it has the both antennas in the phone. And for when you're traveling, or if you're going to a convention or a con, that is just a super, super nice functionality and feature, and it's really straightforward with the Ting dashboard. A couple other things I really, really like about Ting is their hotspot and tethering is just included. They don't really care if you turn it on. It's, if it's in the OS, just use it. No mysterious line items on your bill. 
And really, the thing that I think is best about Ting is they have a ton of great value devices. Remember, these are all unlocked, no contract. You can start right here at the LG 450, $58 for this phone. It's very sleek. It's very simple. It's not a smartphone. It's a feature phone, which is kind of nice if you're a bit of a Luddite, really. $58, no contract, no early termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. And you know what I think is really great about this is it has a front-facing camera right there and a, front, and a, and a front-facing LCD screen. You could probably take a picture of yourself with it. You could take a selfie with this, with this phone. You can't do anything with it. You're not going to post it anywhere. It's not a smartphone. That's what's so wonderful about it. It's just a phone. The LG 450 for 58 bucks, no contract when you go to techsnap.ting.com. Or maybe step it up a bit. You want another value device? HTC Desire 510 Blue. It has the HTC One build quality in a phone that's $88 with no contract from Ting. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, they have the whole range of devices. Really nice devices, latest devices, and great value devices. Also, be sure to check out the Ting blog. Always good information over there. Like a giveaway. They're giving away an LG G4, which is a very nice phone. And they have all the information on how you can get that free LG G4 if you just go to their blog. So start by going to techsnap.ting.com and go check out mobile that truly makes sense. No contracts. They have an early termination relief program if you're stuck on a duopoly contract. And you know that even those duopolies are starting to drop the contracts. doesn't mean mm-hmm. you're not stuck in one, though. You can get out of it. Go over to techsnap.ting.com and check them out. And thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, Alan. So remember when we talked about stage fright a couple of weeks ago? It was this, uh, if I recall, it was like an Android flaw that could basically be executed by getting the Android device to somehow play like an MKV file or an MP4 file of some kind, and then it would exploit the system. Part of it was I think you could actually send an MMS message to people and trigger it. Right, yes. That was sort of like another way to activate it. Yeah, Yeah, and and in that case, the user doesn't have to be tricked into going to a website or anything. You just spam every phone number with an MMS message. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. so yeah, uh, Google released the open source Android project uh, a patch for it, uh, but it turns out maybe it wasn't quite good enough. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so the uh, the original patch was incomplete, and Android's Android devices remain uh, exposed to the attack. Uh, they say we've already sent a fix to our partners to protect users, and the Nexus four, five, six, seven, nine, and ten. Uh, devices will get an over-the-air update in uh, the September monthly security update, uh, is what Google told ThreatPost. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, I don't know why they... I guess they're doing the uh, Microsoft thing of, you know, Patch Tuesday. Yep. They're going to have the monthly well, rollout. Yeah, you remember? Yeah, I was going to say, we talked about that. Yeah, they're doing the monthly rollouts now, so now they're right. just including it's just, it. If they have a fix, why are they sitting on it? Mm. Could I have it sooner? Because it, it's kind of a big deal, this particular one. But. Yeah, it's a huge deal because it, it affects roughly 950 million Android devices actually yeah. out in the wild right now. Yeah, uh, and, you know, it's at least, you know, specifically for my Nexus 6, I should get it right away, you know? I, that's why I bought the Nexus 6, to, you know, to be better than all of you plebs. <laughs> yeah, they're staging it for a September rollout for the Nexus, yes. I think. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> but I don't know if September means like September 1st or September 31st. Yeah, it must be that first, Wednesday, that first patch Wednesday of September. I bet. Is it Wednesday? Okay. I think so. Yeah. Uh, well, then, you know, it's only a week and I'll live with it. Yeah, it's a little odd, though. And it actually, you know, you have the best case. You have the absolute best case scenario as a Nexus device owner. As somebody who has an S6, I have no idea when that patch is coming down towards me. No idea. Well, I still do have a phone company that's partly in the way. 
Mm, true, uh, true. But I have I have been getting the updates, so they're not that bad. Okay. Uh, but while I was actually while I was in the UK, I got a message from my phone company specifically about this. Uh, Tell us security update. We care about your mobile security and want to alert you to the Android stage fright vulnerability impacting Android users globally. To protect your device, we recommend you turn off the ability to auto-download multimedia messages until a software update is available. Hmm. Please visit telus.my slash stagefright for instructions on how to protect your device and for the latest Telus updates about this issue. If a carrier is having to do that, that's bad news for Google. That yep. is a major egg in the face. That's essentially a carrier saying we have to text all of our Android users because they're using Android and warn them about this thing. Right. But part of that is because if, if you have a device other than the Nexus, Talus is part of the holdup on getting that security update to you. So it's kind of their duty to tell you to mitigate it in the meantime because they're going to be part yeah. of the reason why it takes forever for you to get the update in the first place. And if, if, uh, I, think this, I think in this post, too, they talk about how the, it looks like maybe potentially the original fix that Google has created doesn't actually even solve the problem completely but, either. Uh, yes. Uh, so the, the fix that Google did that came out in the August update that's on my phone. Uh, doesn't completely solve uh-huh, the fix. Okay. Uh, the original four-line code fix uh, and one of several patches submitted by the researcher from Zimperum uh, Mobile mm-hmm, Security mm-hmm. Um, was this, uh, who discovered the flaw, uh, still leads to a crash and device takeover. A uh, security researcher with Exodus found the, a problem with the patch and uh, they hinted that it could be uh, similar problems with all the other patches. Jeez. Uh, they failed to account for the integer discrepancy between 30 2 and 64 bit apparently oh. uh, they're not accounting for specific integer types and uh, they were able to bypass the patch with specific values that caused a heap uh, buffer allocated to overflow mm. uh, according to the public sources uh, many more issues have been discovered since they, uh, they reported the bug in the MPEG-4 processing on Android mm. I expect to see continuing fixes on the stage fright code base uh, in the coming months You remember? so even September might not fix all of it so this is amazing. So it's it's something as simple as MPEG four playback is now is now capable of completely owning an Android device. This this well, sounds you, like you Windows. Say, you, you say as simple as MPEG four playback, but it's actually pretty complicated. Okay, all right, fair enough. But I mean, but you know, uh, if you remember <laughs> back a couple of months, uh, there was the um, what was it? Uh, an MP4 file that you feed into FFmpeg could then run random commands on your machine. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Okay. Uh, and what was funny about the post on the security mailing list was the demo, the video they had that caused it was like gay porn or something. Oh, uh, well, you know, and, they, and they attached it. They're like, "Here's a proof of concept for, or here's a video that will crash your FFmpeg. If you, if this video crashes your FFmpeg, you're still vulnerable." That's pretty funny. Uh, and you, you just say, like, this guy discovered this when this video getting uploaded to his video site and processed by FFmpeg was crashing it. And he figured out how it worked or whatever. But yeah. Well, uh, I guess I would say anytime, I guess in reality, anytime you're taking a large set of input, there's Whenever potential. Whenever you're taking any user data, it's, yeah, there's a risk that it's going to explode in your yeah. face. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And this is why, uh, actually, if you check out this week's episode of BSD Now, which should be out actually right it now. It is right now. Um, we interviewed uh, Damian Miller of the OpenSSH project. Mm. And he talked a little bit about nice. uh, why they're changing away from certain crypto ciphers. Uh, and it was specifically because um, with the 
um, way that you encrypt and authenticate data, right? Because you, you do encryption to, so other people can't read it, and then authentication so that um, you can tell if the data has been modified in transit. And uh, with those two different things, there are three different ways you can put it together. There's like uh, encrypt, then Mac, uh, encrypt and Mac, and then Mac and then encrypt or something like mm. that. Um, and basically, SSL and TLS do it one way. IPsec does it a different way, and SSH does it the third way. Turns out only IPsec did it, did it correctly, and so that meant that you know it was theoretically possible with OpenSSH or yeah with OpenSSH that um, someone could modify the data, but the way SSH worked, you have to decrypt the data uh, in order to then get to the Mac to read it to tell if the data has been modified, and so you have to operate on untrusted input. And that's suboptimal. Whereas if you could verify using the Mac that the data is wasn't screwed up in the first place, mm-hmm. then you know if it's been maliciously modified, you could then ignore it, right, and not have the problem of operating on this data that might be malicious. Anyway, it's a good interview. Check it out. There you go. BSD episode. BSD now episode one hundred and four. That does sound really cool, Alan. Yep. Uh, Google noted that uh, in addition to the Nexus devices, uh, the original patch for other mobile providers, including uh, Samsung with its Galaxy and Note devices, mm-hmm. AT, uh, HTC, LG, Sony, Android, etc., or Android One, etc., uh, will be coming out uh, at some point. You know, the, the codes uh, available to all those companies; they just have to finish making their update. Uh, the vulnerability affects Android devices going all the way back to 2.2. Uh, newer versions of Android have built-in mitigations such as ASLR that mm-hmm. lessen the effect of the stage fright exploit. Uh, Google said last week that 90% of Android devices have ASLR enabled and that the next uh, release of its Messenger uh, SMS app uh, also contains a specific mitigation requiring users to click on a video in order for it to start doing anything uh, when they receive it to help mitigate this as well. This way, but you know, if I get a new MMS with a video attached, I'm probably going to be like, "Oh, what is this?" Click right, rather than assuming it's going to break my phone. Of course. Uh, anyway, uh, Forbes has some more coverage, uh, but what's really interesting is that uh, in the meantime, a bunch more Android vulnerabilities have been found. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the people at Checkpoint Security uh, are have a thing they've called uh, Certificate. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how they decided it had something to do with Watergate, but uh, <laughs> they uh, with a way that you can uh, spoof certificates and stuff on Android, which is obviously a big deal. Uh, and then uh, there's also another one where a remote access vulnerability that's actually currently being exploited in the wild. So that's also kind of a big deal. The uh, first comment on Krebs' blog, it pretty much underscores my thoughts. Maybe I'm being too harsh, but uh, Daniel writes, So... Google has known about a bug allowing fully automatic and invisible takeover of roughly a billion handsets and plans to distribute a patch some five months later with no clear plan on how to even reach all the affected units. Is that even legal? Uh, Well, you have to remember that technically, other than the Nexus devices, Google doesn't make the other devices. Yep. You know, they make some software that other people use and, you know, it's Samsung's fault for not auditing the software and <laughs> whatever. Yeah, that sounds like a really good answer. Too bad that just doesn't that doesn't satisfy me in practice for some reason. It just doesn't seem good enough. Uh, maybe because it's a billion people that are affected by it. Maybe that's why that doesn't feel like a good enough answer. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> Alan, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, I'm sure this is not the end of what we'll see with Android. And, uh, you know, like we mentioned with that HP article a couple of weeks ago, you know, the worst part is that we're going to we see all the same mistakes being making again with smartwatches, whether they run Android or something else. Uh, and the Internet you know, of Things devices. Yes, Internet of Things devices uh, mm-hmm. and just everything that keeps getting made. Yeah. Uh, and uh, coming up uh, two weeks from now, uh, we'll have an interesting story about uh, embedded Linux things and how the state of that has gotten so bad that uh, some people in the Linux security community are now fighting back against it. The, uh, the thing that jumps out at me about these stories is uh, just how it just keeps... Uh, it just we keep replaying some of these things and not learning these lessons and and when right. I think back if one thing that could have gone differently that would have helped so much is if maybe potentially the Nexus devices that had more market success maybe the carriers could have shipped Nexus devices and not messed with them or something because if the Nexus devices even had half the Android market share even half it would make such a difference we we would be talking about half a billion users. Um, it's just such a shame. Right. Well, I, I don't know that it's necessarily Google's fault for the, you know, that the Nexus devices aren't everything. Part of it is they don't want it to be, right? They want uh, I don't know the what other they carriers want them, to do but, some of it. Yeah. Uh, but Google doesn't really want to be a phone company, I don't think. Right? They, they want the users on their ecosystem, but they prefer if somebody else made the devices. I'm and not sure that's the... true, though. I mean, look at the Nexus. They kept the Nexus line going. They've launched their own wireless carrier service. I mean, I, they, yeah. they keep sending really mixed messages here. It's like, well, and, they have, and they, now they have they, Android One. And Android One, they control top to bottom. You know, they right. even control which hardware the manufacturers can use. They, they have pre-approved hardware. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know, Alan. I feel like Google, if they could do it over, wouldn't do it like this. Well, uh, yes, I, I think they might have learned their lesson with that, uh, you know, Make something open source and let companies build stuff on it, and they will do terrible things. Mm. Uh, and you know, we we found this in the in the FreeBSD camp, and that they all realize their mistake and fix it. It just takes them more than five years to do so, right? They'll, they'll base software on some version of of FreeBSD, and then they will just keep using that version, even though once it's not supported anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we keep using, keep. Yep. And eventually, they're like, "Well, we have to switch to something newer, and we have to do like." We have to catch up on the last seven years of development and try to do it quick. And, you know, uh, I know at one company there was a guy whose job was for two years just to try to catch their stack up to the latest FreeBSD. That's a nightmare. And they gave a great presentation at BSD Can about how we will promise we will never do that again. <laughs> We're going to follow ahead and, and make sure that our development Good. environment. So every time we make a new product, it's based on the latest FreeBSD because otherwise, you just Good. end up with this technical debt that you can't. Yes. Now, and can I they go around and beat that into everybody else in the industry, please? Please, exactly. please. Exactly. Uh, the problem is that we keep spawning these new industries, and they make exactly the same mistakes over yeah. and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Very good. that, again, actually harks back to the OpenSSH uh, interview. Part of the things we talked about is removing legacy stuff like triple des from, and uh, even MD5, from OpenSSH to avoid what we found with open SSL, which was, you know, we had these downgrade attacks or just, be, you know, tricking people into using old versions of Cypher that had known problems. It's like, you know, if we can get rid of that stuff, we just will avoid having the next, you know, mm-hmm. heart bleed for SSH uh, by just making sure we clean up in a controlled manner instead of having to do it in a rush once somebody finds a problem. Boy, that is a good lesson for them to learn. Yep. Hmm. Right, Mr. It, it really highlights the difference between how OpenSSH has actually been maintained the whole time mm-hmm. and had people actively working on it versus 
uh, OpenSSL, which was kind of created, and then people paid contractors to build stuff onto it or whatever, but no one ever yeah. had to go through and mop up afterwards. That is an interesting, when you think about it, that is a very interesting observation. It, yeah. it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and we also talked a bit about the monoculture of OpenSSH and mostly how at least it's you know actively maintained, so it's not as bad as what the monoculture of OpenSSL was. <laughs> hey, uh, let me t- before we go too much further, I want to tell you about Alan Jude's secret weapon, the thing that makes Scale Engine really tick. That's our sponsor, IX Systems. Go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and learn more about IX Systems. You can also grab the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Check out their whole site. They got everything from huge iron down to things that will run in your small business land. No problem, like the free NAS Mini. And uh, Alan Jude has been buying from IX Systems. What, Alan? I mean, I, I think... Well, a couple of years now. My, when did I get my first free NAS? It was during this show. Right, yeah. it was like our, during We've been our doing first this show year. for like four years. Yeah, so I've been an IX Systems customer for I think three years now. Yeah, uh, and so uh, and I knew about them a little bit beforehand. Uh, in fact, uh, yeah. for that first year, we we were we 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 were begging them to come on because we were such fans. We this mm-hmm. IX Systems basically I think the only sponsor I can think of that we have courted. Most everybody comes to us, but IX Systems we knew was such a perfect fit for our audience, we courted them. And you can go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap to find out more. And if you want to drool a little bit, check out Alan's Twitter feed where he just posted some really great photos of the rig he got. Some more pictures of yes. that. Dang, so I have two Alan. two of these rigs at my house. These are the uh, – well, that one there is the uh, – that's the big one that's in the data center. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can tell because it has more fans. And, and those, look at those heat sinks on those big CPUs. Got some RAM yep. in there. Uh, yeah, uh, 128 gigs of DDR4. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And wow. that one's got uh, two of the LSI uh, 92078i controllers. Hashtag server envy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, <one. laughs> wow. Yeah, there they are. Those are the controllers right there. Yep. Yeah, very uh, nice. But the version I have at home has three of those controllers because it uses SATA drives, so we don't use any expanders. Mm-hmm. Whereas that one is the 36-drive version, so we have uh, two cards that go through uh, expanders but are multipath. So every one of the 36 drives is connected to each of those two controllers. So even if one of those controllers dies, I can still access all the disks. But yeah. I can also load balance and get more bandwidth to my right. disks as well. That's really slick. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so that process, you know, working with IX, they're not, it, you can go to them and say, this is kind of what I've been conceiving. And they're not going to say, "Oh, well, this doesn't fit in the script." And they don't—they—they they don't break down. They don't—they don't totally lose track of how to communicate with you and not know how to deliver a solution. They're—I mean, I—I I, I mean, you're probably a pretty smart person out there, but they're usually a step ahead of you because these oh, yes. people are really the experts in the field. They're really the experts at this stuff. And so when they're you start the telling them what you want to do, they're really in sync with you, and they're often—they yeah. know how to make it happen. You know, I didn't know anything about multipath. It was like, "Hey, I need to." I, um, they're like, "This is how yeah. you would do it." Like, yeah. oh, that, yeah. That, Yes, we should do that. And that's what's uh, great about it. I mean, uh, when but I... at the I, same time, you know, they're like, well, those hard drives, you know, SATA drives are not as good. You know, it's not enterprise. And I'm like, well, I really want to do it that way. And they're like, okay, so you'd have to do this and this. And, you know, here's the limitations you're going to run into because of that. You know, you won't be able to just add a sled of extra drives because mm. you won't be able to cable them probably. You know, if you use SASH, you can because, mm-hmm. you know, you just have one cable going from a box of drives and you get that much more storage. Yeah, that's, that's nice that they you know, make it clear. That they can and, actually explain the trade-offs. Yeah. Or, you know, mm-hmm. at the one point we were looking at, well, uh, we mostly just use, you know, the V2 processors, the, um, I guess it would be Ivy Bridge uh, Xeons. And, you know, the nice thing there is it uses DDR3 RAM, which is cheaper, uh, but the way Intel's done it, the Haswell processor that's this, uh, in the same step 
is actually got two more cores on on Haswell, uh, and you know this is what it'll cost to switch over to DDR4 RAM. Uh, and I was like, mm, for that price, I would like the extra cores and the extra and the faster yeah. RAM. Yeah, nice to be able to but make that choice. I, I had yeah, I had the choice. Whereas if you go to some other place, it's like, well, we have this model, you know. We make this model up to a certain point, and then we stop making it. We make this new one, and mm-hmm. your choices are that or that. I remember when I was specking out. I mean, this so so, the, Alan. You you don't just have to be like buying as many servers as Alan for them to treat you with that level of customer service. Well, I don't buy that many servers. That's only like you know. Well, you, you bought, like yeah, over the years, that's a lot. <laughs> but I, mean, I over the years, but I mean, like when I just bought my one free NAS mini, like mm-hmm. I still got like that level. Like I remember one of my big questions was: is I'm going to have twelve? I'm, I'm, my first setup was a twelve terabyte. Uh, which doesn't seem like that much anymore, um, a pool, a ZFS pool, and I wanted to know really how much memory did I need, and I was going to just, I was just, I was like, I don't care, I'm going to throw a ton of memory at this thing, and so I specced it with like a ton of memory, and they, they got a hold of me, and they're like, just so you know, um, and they kind of really ran through like everything from like power consumption to like how much RAM's actually going to be utilized by the system and the file system, and n- ended up knocking like 200 bucks off of how much RAM I was going to spend. Well, yeah, because uh, it can also impact the motherboard, you know, a typical like, uh, motherboard you would use for an E3 or I3 processor uh, tops out at 32 gigs, which is probably enough for even a 12 terabyte tool. Mm-hmm. Pool. Mm-hmm. But if you decide you want more, then you're talking about a server grade motherboard with either the Atom or like an E5 or something, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, even the so single socket E5, and that makes a big difference. You know, I was talking uh, with Dan Langilla when he was building his server. It's like, well, are you actually going to need more than 32 gigs of RAM? Because that's you know swapping the motherboard and a higher end processor and but all a whole different category. Is a whole different category, but it does mean that you can then go up to 384 gigs of RAM. <laughs> yep. Yep. And, yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of RAM. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, my systems can support up to 1.5 terabytes, although you'd have to buy RAM sticks so big that they don't actually make them yet. That get. just boggles but my mind. With 24 slots, you're still going, like, if you look at the pictures, you, most of my RAM slots are not populated. I yeah, I did notice that. Yeah, I did. I was looking at when I was looking at that. I there did are like notice. like 24 RAM slots that I'm using, like, mm-hmm. eight. That's for future expansion, Alan. That's great. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, so, uh, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Head over there. Check them out. Uh, let them know the TechSnap show sent you. You can also get that free white paper if you want to grease the wheels in your organization to get things moving. Trust me, it's definitely worth the switch. All right, Alan, our next story in TechSnap, I've always thought this. I've never really spent much time thinking about it a lot, but it's always crossed my mind that a KVM seems like if you had access to a KVM or if you could get remote access to a KVM, you could have yourself a pretty su- su- uh, fancy and sophisticated surveillance device. Yep. Is this about uh, what our next story is around? Server, yeah, or taking over servers. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, so, yeah, some researchers uh, presented their work at Black Hat recently, and we have a write-up on it. And basically, uh, they taught a keyboard switch to spy on its users and infect computers. <laughs> uh, it says, uh, when it comes to large systems, there are a lot more computers than there are people maintaining them. You know, that's not a big deal since we have these handy KVM devices to connect one keyboard uh, video and mouse terminal up to all of them and then switch between uh, boxes simply and seamlessly, right? The, the side effect is now that these KVMs kind of have the same level of access as a human does to all of those machines. Uh, and so the uh, two researchers spent some time reverse engineering the firmware on one of these devices and demonstrate how a shady firmware can own these systems and uh, even some of the systems that are actually air-gapped from the Internet. So, you know, early KVM switches, like uh, the first one I had, 
um, are like physical hardware switches. Like mine actually had buttons, and you pressed it in, and it would make all the other buttons pop out. So you can only have one selected at a time. Oh yeah, mine too. Yeah, and it just physically connected the wires for one keyboard, video, and mouse to mm-hmm. different computers. Yeah, yep, that was what mine. Uh, my first ones were like yeah. too. Uh, but by the year 2000, we had these matrix KVMs, where you could actually chain them together, and while standing at one console, control a computer quite a ways away. Because you would just chain through all these uh, KVMs to get to the right KVM. Mm-hmm. And, you know, instead of having to physically press a button on the KVM, you just press, like, uh, scroll lock or print screen or something. Yeah, scroll lock, um, scroll lock or something like that. Yeah, or cap lock, cap lock or something. And it would just literally bring up a menu and allow you to search or surf through all these machines and find the one you wanted to control. It was the future. Like, I could have – we had uh, – with the IT department, you know, we had a division out – in uh, the floor and we had one secured desk where we had a server console that we could walk up to and get access to all of the servers in the data center without having to enter the secure data center and go through all the double doors and all that kind of crap. It was well, and amazing. Also just, if you've ever stood in a data center where, you know, if you're in the hot aisle and it's hot and there's just noise everywhere and you have to stand, it's just like miserable. This is not a good working condition. No. Whereas if I can sit over there in the work area mm-hmm. in the chair mm-hmm. that goes up and down and adjusts for my height mm-hmm. and control the computers, that would be so much better. And it's not 100 dB of fan noise. <laughs> exactly. And not 100 degrees of exhaust. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so with these Matrix KVMs, you could literally control a thousand computers from a single keyboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it got even fancier. You know, keyboards started being USB and you started wanting to be able to hook other devices up. Like a CD-ROM. And then yeah, and then you would have uh, video transcoding because maybe the monitor didn't support the same resolutions as the computers in there, or you want to do picture-in-picture and overlays and stuff, right? And then virtual media, where I have an ISO file, and mm-hmm. I want to mount it as if it was a CD-ROM drive in that individual computer. I it love makes that. reinstalling operating systems or booting off a live CD so much easier. Mm-hmm. But that basically means that KVMs end up becoming an entire computer in and of itself, with its own operating system that could then be hacked. And that's what these guys did. Uh, they say, you know, handily, when we bought this KVM, it came with a CD with a firmware update and the tool to update the firmware. So, you know, they looked at the firmware file and tried to deconstruct it, but it was all obfuscated. They couldn't find anything, not even like some strings or a version number or anything. Um, so then they spied on the, the protocol that went from the, when they were programming it over the cable into the other device, but it was just sending that raw, obfuscated binary, so that didn't help them. So then they basically got a bunch of different versions of the firmware and started comparing them and were able to extract the version numbers from the firmware and figure out how that worked. Uh, and then they also noticed uh, certain ASICs that were built into the circuit boards of the, the devices and figured out which assembly language it was using. And... Uh, Eventually, we were able to figure out the way they were obfuscating the code was using like these three bytes from the version number and like uh, rotating the bytes on all through the firmware. Mm. And so once they figured it out, they were able to uh, deobfuscate the firmware and actually get a look at the code. And they said, of course, reading the firmware is only the first step. You need to show that something uh, useful or insidious can be done with it. So during their talk, the pair demonstrated their custom firmware switching to a different system typing in the password that it had logged earlier when a human had logged into that system. Uh-huh. And then echoing out a binary file, uh, which should then be executed to load malware on the system. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, you could literally just stand there with your hands off and watch it switch to some computer, log in as root, and 
Let it go. Some Let it go. Wow, yeah. Alan. It's it's kind of similar to you know, the bad USB stuff where you know you would program a um, a webcam to pretend to be a keyboard and do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so yes, you need physical access to perform the attack because you have to touch the KVM well, and yeah, flashes yeah. firmware. Uh, but some of these KVMs are IP KVMs, so you can do it over the network. A lot of them are now. Yeah, because you know, if you stick one of these KVMs in the top of every rack and then wire them back, you can do all this from your office or your house. You know, that being on call at 3 a.m. is less of a problem if you can just go to your computer fix the machine and go back to bed instead of having to get up and drive well, to the and data center. Like you've shared on the show before, you know, you have servers that are in different countries and you need to be able to reload the operating system from time to time. IP KVM is good. I'm not flying to Singapore to do no. it. <laughs> no, that's just not reasonable. And IP KVM is li- quite literally your best solution. Mm-hmm. So I mean, what, uh, what would you do, Alan? But the obvious problem is that those IP KVMs allow you handily to update the firmware yes. over the internet. Well, you need to be able to, right? Right. So these obviously need to be protected behind VPNs and need to be considered, you know, they're basically the, the you know, the golden egg of the network. You really have to put some thought into yeah. protecting them. I, I'm, I would be pretty and, skeptical if somebody's not already considering them to be the golden egg. If you have these in production. Yeah. yeah. You know, if I can remotely log in, you know, because oftentimes I can just picture people with like four letter passwords and stuff that are just not good enough. But partly it's that, you know, these are little embedded Linuxes that are running old versions of Linux and yep. is, are terrible. Yeah, they just the vendors just don't feel like updating yep. them. Yeah. You know, I've seen some of them that are running like an embedded version of HP UX. <laughs> oh. You know what I find cr- crazy common is like uh, Linux kernel 2.2. Now yep. you think about that, Alan. 2.4 and 2. Dot, and 3.6. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, sorry, 2.6 and like... 3.0, like these are all versions like that have come out since then, and they're using 2.2. We're already on 4. something, right? <laughs> well, yes, that is true. Yeah, in fact, let me tell you right now. I could tell you. Let's see, my machine here, which is which, which was updated like as of a week ago. Uh, I'm running 4.1.3 right now on my machine. So yeah, <laughs> the fact that a lot of these KVMs are using kernel 2.2 is almost inexcusable. Do you yep. do you do anything you want to share to kind of protect yours since you have these? You, basically, you have to hide it behind a VPN that's strong and and only know. let access from that IP of the VPN. Yep. Well, it's just yeah, like VLANs and stuff to completely isolate it, so there's no way to get to it except for the VPN. Um, now, IPMI, which is like a special version of this, that lets you do everything, including power off the machine or yeah. whatever, and has built-in IPKVM. Um, they can be a slightly more insidious because oftentimes there'll be a dedicated Ethernet port for it. Uh-huh. But if when the machine is powered on, that nothing's connected to that port, it will fail over to acting as a second MAC address on the first main network card. Now what now? Um, so basically, the network cable you plug into the very first NIC. Yeah will have two MAC addresses, one that goes to the NIC in the operating system and one that goes to the IPKVM. Is that for management identification, or why do they do that? Well, they do that so that you can not have to run, not take two switch ports for every server. Oh, so you could actually manage it over... On the same okay. connection. Okay. Now, in the software, you can set a VLAN or whatever, yeah. but basically some people will think, oh, well, I, I have my VPN not hooked, or the uh, IPMI is not hooked up because I didn't plug a cable in there. Yeah. Well, if you didn't set the BIOS setting to force it to always use that port it will fail over and start using the other port. And then, you know, if you don't think it's reachable, maybe you didn't change the default password from admin in uppercase. Wow. You know, I remember when, uh, I remember when it wasn't called IPMI. 
and that yep. stuff you had to buy, you had to pay an awful lot extra for it, and it came well, as an yeah, add-on card. If you, you know, yeah, but yeah, the, your Dells and HPs, your Dell calls it DRAC, and yes. HP calls it uh, integrated lights out. Yeah, yeah, islands, yeah, uh, and so on. IPMI is, is actually the um, the standard the that Intel's most of them are based stuff, on. right? Yeah, like stuff no, that... uh, Intel's is AMT. Oh, okay. IPMI is just the open spec that actually there's actually security vulnerabilities in the spec which yeah. is worse <laughs> it means that it's not not just do we have the problems of certain people implemented things badly but the spec, the spec actually itself. requires that you do it wrong oh and there's some terrible things uh, but yeah the biggest one there is you know if people don't realize that the default setting is have it get an address from DHCP and listen on that first nick he's like oh you know make sure you actually have it uh, locked down and on a physically isolated network. Yeah, because the first thing a vulnerability scanner is going to do is look for things like that. Somebody coming yep. in and scanning and stuff. All right, Mr. Jude, do you know how you can manage all of that and not have to worry about it? Oh, sorry. Uh, there's a little bit more to the story. Oh, go right. ahead then. Okay. Uh, so, um, I say that there are many vectors available here in knowing that and uh, discussion turns to prevention. Uh, one interesting idea they had was uh, keystroke statistics. Right? Oh. If, if you're going to... F- uh, you know, if the keyboard is just going to inject some commands or binary or whatever, it's probably just going to do it really quickly. Yeah, uh, that doesn't whereas, take a lot for a, for an author to figure out a way to work around. But it seems like right, a pretty yeah, you easy. Can, you can pretend to be a human kind of easily, but you know, doing things like how fast the character is being typed, how tightly the letters are together, um, human traits like humans make typos and have to press backspace. If I write thirty kilobytes without a single backspace, maybe I'm not a human. You know, uh, but that might help reduce the effectiveness of this type of attack, but really you just have to secure your, your IP KVMs and, and hope nobody's replacing the firmware, I guess. <laughs> and hope for the best. Uh, Alan Jude's advice. <laughs> but yeah, this, is, this interesting research makes me a little more suspicious of the 16-port two-user IP KVM I have for some of my older servers that don't have IPMI. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very much. Uh, I remember when we first started rolling out these IP KVMs, I remember thinking, man, what a vulnerability these things were. And so back then I worked at a bank, and all of our security precautions were pretty much if the FDIC told us to do it or not. And for years and years and years, they had no handle on these IP KVMs. So there was no real stringent policies coming down about where they should be deployed, how accessible they should be. And so a lot of times, you know, we would think of servers' physical access as having to get in the server room or into the main data center where the mainframe was. But really, you just had to get into our department and get into one desk that we had somebody watching all the time, which if you were there after hours, nobody would be watching. And you would have, you would have had physical access to this bank's data infrastructure. Yep. So. And, you know, most of these, like, you know, your firewall doesn't help you if they're touching the physical computer. That's true. That's true. All right, Alan, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, nope, that's it for that one. All right, links and Alan's copious notes are in the show notes. Now, I'll tell you about DigitalOcean. Now you don't have to manage IPMI or anything like that or KVMs. Just go get yourself a droplet for $5 a month. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. They have an HTML5 console, so you don't need an IP KVM. It's just actually they wrote it in Go. How cool is that? They wrote their HTML5 console in Go, so it works on your mobile device or it works on, the, on your web browser, which you're probably going to be using on your desktop. Um, and it's really nice from from uh, from the from the uh, from the BIOS all the way up to login. You get uh, HTML5 console access. You get a you can get a virtual mas- machine spun up in less than fifty five seconds. I've heard oh, I've heard ranges anywhere from thirty seconds or so on. And the best part is is the value pricing. So their pricing structure is really straightforward. They have it. In fact, they're kind of proud of it because it 
it's great, and they have it right on their front page. Uh, if you go there, digitalocean.com, check it out. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit. Because look at this. The pricing, do- the pricing plan, $5 a month. $5 a month, and you'll get 512 megabytes of RAM. You get a 20-gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of freaking transfer for $5 a month. And if you use the promo code SNAPOcean, you're going to get a $10 credit. You can try it out two months for free. Go build a rig for two months for free. Uh, and the best part about DigitalOcean is they have a really amazing interface to manage all of this. It's better than anything else I've ever used in the industry. It's better than probably anything you've ever seen because it's inscri- extremely intuitive, extremely simple, but they don't lack on power and features. Like you can deploy around the world. You can scale and resize. You can do snapshots. You can do one-click application deployments. You can choose between CentOS, FreeBSD, Ubuntu, Debian, Fedora. Like all of this stuff is there. You can automatically manage your SSH keys, which is a really slick way to manage that when you're doing remote login. And they have an API that allows you to extend all that functionality beyond in a really straightforward methodology. Plus, they have really, really good tutorials. So that way, once you get your machine spun up, you're not just kind of sitting around with nothing to do, which you're never going to have that problem ever, trust me. And if you ever like, geez, maybe there's something else I could do with my machine, this is where you go. Here's a great one. How to deploy multiple PHP applications using Ansible on Ubuntu 14.04. How to use the Apache Cassandra one-click application image. There's another great one. And, you know, they put the author's names right on there. They professionally edit these. DigitalOcean has a staff of editors, and they also pay for the tutorials. You might want to look into that if you don't, if uh, maybe you want to get paid for writing. Uh, this is a great way to go if you have something you're an expert on. Check it out at digitalocean.com slash community slash get dash paid dash to write. It's all got dashes in there. Get paid to write with dashes in between each word. And, or just check out on their community page. You can dig around. And they're also hiring very frequently. So check out their hiring page because uh, if you told them you, hear about, you heard about them from a Jupiter Broadcasting show, rumor has it you might go to the top of the stack. So go over to yeah, digitalocean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. Try a $10 credit. Try them out for a couple of months. See what we've been talking about. It's my go-to Linux infrastructure on demand. I really love it. Digitalocean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Yeah, I saw somebody that works there on Twitter saying, hey, come work with me with a link to one of their job pages. So yeah. Sound pretty cool. Yeah, uh, and they often have positions open that are related to very, you know, right up our audience's alley. Um, and they, exactly. they they specifically emailed me saying, hey, we would like to hire people from your audience. So I think you have a good shot. Uh, now, hey, you know, we just mentioned the BSD Now show, so we probably don't need to replug episode 104. But there is but- only a couple of days left. We could mention the shirt. Yes, we need to mention the shirt because it ends uh, August 31st, which is Monday. Yeah. So hurry up yeah. and buy your shirt. Teespring.com slash BSD105, the usual BSDs. You got the uh, BSD Devly on there with a gold Z and a hard drive. Of course, you got the uh, Blowfish with the uh, broken Wi-Fi router. What's up? Yep. And uh, NetBSD rocking the toaster. <laughs> yep. Four days, six hours left as we record for BSD Now's two-year anniversary in mm-hmm. celebration of episode 105, which comes out next week. It's the yes. usual BSDs. And a unisex and woman's fitted tee. Yes. And actually, you know, the tagless tee, I can confirm, it looks just great on women, too. Yep. Yeah. We, uh, Angela rocks those all the time. So, teespring.com slash BSD105. That's a great shirt, Alan. And, you know, you guys yes. got that professionally commissioned, and it looks really good. Mm-hmm. It looks really good. Yes. All right, Alan. Uh, you know, quite a bit of work to get it done, mm-hmm. look right, and uh, I like that you guys uh, get the permission on all the logos, too. Oh, Right, and I like that you guys are uh, kind of pandemic and actually specifically making it 105. Not that, not that 100 episodes crap. No, it's got to be 105, so that way it's on the mark. That, that wasn't, you know, <laughs> laziness and schedule slippage or anything. That was, that was intentional. Right, yes. And this isn't. I like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yes. That's how you play it off. That's how you play it off. All right, Alan, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. 
Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or starting a thread in our subreddit over at links. Nope, we don't use that anymore. Techsnap.reddit.com. Boy, that was a callback. So Omar writes in, and he's got quite the conundrum. He says, hi, guys. One of our executives connects his Mac mail application to our Exchange server via Exchange Web Services. Now, he's concerned that maybe they've been hacked. So no VPN is necessary. On his last two trips to China, his internal email has been stopped by our outward-facing SonicWall email security appliance. Considering that this email is meant for someone internally, meaning on the same domain, it should never have gone outside to begin with. I checked our exchange server logs and see no reference this email being sent, which is no surprise considering it came from the outside. The, det- the details from the SonicWall email appliance show the originating IP is 72.35.23.35. This IP is not associated with us. The hotel our employee was staying at is the Pullman Hotel in China. The hotel supposedly uses a VPN based out of Hong Kong. This VPN is so guests can access Western websites. Wow, look at that, a hotel-level VPN. It is, it, is it possible the email address was intercepted and resent via another mail server? It just doesn't um, make sense that email would be not sent internally from our exchange server while he is connected to it. Thanks, guys. Um, in this case, the IP address is like a specifically uh, an SMTP sending server for something called electric.net. Uh, so I'm wondering, it might be sending specifically to his laptop that are causing that. Um, ideally, if you want to make sure that nothing's happening, you would connect to the mail server over SSL, right? And as long as the certificate's right, then you know that the packets aren't being molested or modified. Um, but, you know, maybe you should use a VPN anyway, and VPN over VPN. <laughs> but um, I think the confusion, uh, I think everything might have been okay, and the confusion is that the sonic wall is actually intercepting the email on the way in as it's about to go to the mail server. Well, that would be, but if he's sending from one exchange user to another exchange server, it should never be going through the sonic wall. Well, I guess the sonic wall is doing the like SMTP, right? And it's supposed to be doing right. But if exchange. you're doing, but if it's all on the same mail server, it doesn't go through the SMTP server on exchange. I don't know that much about exchange uh, specifically. I don't know if uh, Exchange Web Services actually does some kind of SSL or something. That's possible. In fact, that is very possible that it configures the Apple Mail client to use SMTP. That might be exactly yeah. what it is. I bet. I bet, I, I, I bet if you check the be. client configuration, that's exactly why. Yeah. And then the Mac is configured <clears throat> to use the CEO's like home mm-hmm. ISP's mail server or something. Yeah, it's, I bet it's using Exchange. Like so the, IP, the IP ends up going back to CenturyLink. The Exchange like Web ISP. Services uh, using Mac Mail, if I'm correct, it uses Exchange Web Services to get things like address book lookup and to do some calendar and exchanging, things like that. But it doesn't use it for actually sending and receiving of the mail. I think it uses IMAP and SMTP for that on the back end. Uh, right. Uh, and that might explain why it's not working the way you were expecting it to work. Um, but yes, uh, if you're worried about it, you should use SSL and or VPNs to avoid... Oh, definitely be using SSL. Yeah. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't used Exchange since they taught it to us in school 10 you're years Lucky ago. man. You're a lucky man. All right, Rasmus writes in with our next one. And now, he has a conundrum that I think a lot of people in our audience face based on the emails we get. He says, I'm in need of a new router for my home network, and I've heard you talk about the virtues of PFSense, and I must agree, it looks pretty great. And I love the idea of an open and powerful system with a proper update pr- process in place. But I was somewhat dismayed to find out that the PFSense store's cheapest model is $300. Searching around a bit, I found that you can get away with hardware whose total cost comes out to be about $100. 
but if I go with a very minimal build, I'm afraid it'll just be inadequate for PFSense when they up their requirements during a major update. This is compared to, say, like a consumer router from Netgear and TP-Link, which goes for as low as $20. So my question is, for a home network of, say, two computers and one smartphone and two internet-enabled devices on a standard 10-100 megabit connection, could a PFSense-based solution make sense, or is it just overkill? And what are my main advantages of PFSense compared to a standard off-the-shelf $40 Netgear router on a small network? Mr. Jude? Uh, PFSense isn't really going to up their requirements, so I wouldn't worry about it. Um, when I only needed 100 megabits, I ran my PFSense on an old Pentium 3, and it worked fine. Yeah, I mean, PFSense has been low system requirements for its entire existence now, and it really yeah. hasn't... <clears throat> you know, the part of the thing is those $300 devices are guaranteed to be able to do a gigabit of encrypted traffic oh. for, like, IPsec. Yeah. Right? They're using the server-grade Atom processors to be low power but high... That's nice. You know, power. You know, with PFSense, uh, where you're going to get where you're going to get resource hungry is the packages you install. So if you install yep. Squid and you install uh, ITOP and you install things like NTOP and Portal and and you're doing like content filtering and maybe you or start deciding you want to like benchmark uh, everything in the world, you know, right? Or if you're using it to do a VPN between two offices and you're encrypting a lot of traffic, yeah, yeah, uh, and things like that. Uh, so yeah, you can definitely. Uh, Get away with the cheaper device. And now, haven't you been talking about people installing PFSense on TP, TP-Link no, routers? No, uh, that's not PFSense. That's raw FreeBSD, and you have to do it all yourself from a serial console. Yeah, okay. So not. It's not nice. at all. Okay. Uh, the biggest problem with... Uh, currently, PFSense can't run on uh, non-X86 architectures. Okay. Uh, and the TP-Link... Uh, the $60 TP-Link is... Uh, well, maybe it's more like $50, but it's uh, MIPS. Uh, so... I know people are having success it, with Open in, in a, WRT on TP-Links. Yes, that might be uh, a good it, It's the same one. You, you can use Open uh, WRT or uh, FreeBSD, like plain vanilla FreeBSD. Uh, it's on GitHub under uh, FreeBSD Wi-Fi build. Uh, and it's just a matter of PFSense needs some time to, to build the stuff. And basically, uh, to be able to run FreeBSD on a TP-Link, you have to run FreeBSD 11, which isn't actually released yet. And so PFSense hasn't got mm-hmm. around to doing it. And they're kind of in the middle of you know, improving the GUI and doing a bunch of other work at the same time. Yeah, yeah, boy. I mean, I guess if he needs something right now, he might want to look yeah, at OpenWRT uh, and see what they support. Yeah, or just, honestly, any old leftover computer you have will work fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, PFSense, there's, you definitely have a lot more expandability, mm-hmm. uh, more configuration. Mm-hmm. You can SSH into it. You can do all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, there are devices like the Edge Router Lite that can run FreeBSD or OpenBSD uh, or whatever. We talked about the Edge Router Lite on BSD Now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday um but yeah um i would say i would still go with pfsense um and just put it on a cheaper device of your own um i understand your uh requirements of web mods only 100 megabit um but i guess it didn't make sense for pfsense to part of uh, the cost also is if you look at it they include you know support and everything with the device uh and you know the they don't have much interest in, in a thin margin cheap device because uh, you know you can just go buy that off Amazon yourself and install PFSense mm-hmm. if you don't want support and hard and like a warranty and all that, right? Mm-hmm. All right. You, uh, so, uh, you know, we people have wrote in a bunch of times with uh, devices on Amazon from like Jetway or whatever that's got a couple mm-hmm. of nicks or you know yeah. you overkill uh, the. System76 makes an Intel NUC with two NICs in it. Uh-huh. Oh, um, I don't know if it has two NICs, but I have seen one well, somebody, some, yeah. we've, we've, we've highlighted a... A NUC with two uh, NICs. Yeah. That would be uh, sweet. It, 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 it turned into a whole meme on 
uh, Linux Unplugged yeah. when I was yeah. talking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's right, it did. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, of course, uh, you know, a NUC for under $300 isn't really going to happen either, but... Yeah. Uh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. it depends. Uh, but the, the TP-Link... I wouldn't buy anything that only cost $20. It would be too crappy. Uh, the TP-Link uh, WDR3600 for about 60 bucks. you can use the stock stuff or run open WRT or DDWRT or... Uh, FreeBSD on it, and that's what I have. Very good. Uh, but the uh, the devices they have at PFSense, uh, they they make one or two for each of the FreeBSD conferences, and they like laser etch a custom d- art into it and stuff, and they look so nice. Uh, Dan in the chat room won the one at BSD Can last year, and it's got uh, the FreeBSD Beastie playing hockey. It's really nice. Oh, cool. All right. Andrew writes in with our next email. He wants to know about uh, getting into the managed services business. He says, hey, guys, firstly, thanks for being the source of my entertainment on many long road trips. You're awesome. Well, thanks, Andrew. He says, I run a small IT business and would like to expand into offering managed services to my business customers. I'm on a tight budget, and I'm trying to find a self-hosted managed service solution that I can run. I've looked into lab tech, but it's way out of my price range, and I need some basic monitoring, reporting, and remote control features for client workstations and servers. Do you have any recommendations for me? Huge plus if it's open source and can be hosted on my own Linux VPS. I'm already running Screen Connect, but it's very lacking in features. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, my biggest problem is that he just says managed services as if I should know what that means. <laughs> I think he means like checking for monitoring, uptime, and then reporting if it's he- down. I'm guessing... Uh, or managed services, I mean, is actually managing people's computers. Oh, maybe that's what he means. You might be right. Yeah, yeah. that's probably what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, because managed services could be any service. You know, managed services will, you know, scale in itself manage video service. Yeah, so that's true. It, it could really be... Anyway. Yeah, I totally misunderstood. I was thinking it was like managing your, your, your systems to make sure they're up and, and running, but you're probably right. It's, it's more, yeah, I think it's just... He's talking about Screen Connect. It's, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, in that case... Uh, I don't know if I have a suggestion uh, for that. I would say that you get something where the machines would connect back to the yeah. Linux VPS somewhere, and then you connect into it so that you get around firewalls. And I guess that's a good way yeah. to put it. The requirements would be, and you could check out Guacamole. It, it does this. The requirements would be, um, and it's open source, is uh, you want something that proxies the connection between the two because they're always going to be on a NAT. They're never going to have any easy time connecting. This is something TeamViewer handles really well, too. Yep. Um, because so, it basically they have a server that mediates the stuff for you, yeah. and with something like guacamole and a VPS, you could yep. build something of the same. Yeah. Uh, and this deals with the fact that you know, even if you go in there and uh, you know, I've, I've had a, a client that does this, um, and he was reselling my backup service to to like a chamber of commerce or something. But every once in a while, they would like you know, they close up the office for a week for a vacation or whatever, and they come back and their all their DHCP leases would be different, and now all their port forwards weren't working anymore. <laughs> Or pointed to the wrong machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, having something that tunnels out from the client's location to your VPS, uh, where you can then connect to the VPS and connect to the clients, uh, will deal with the firewall problems. Uh, I have no real experience in this particular area. So uh, Chris recommends guacamole. Check is something you could check out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all Maybe, right. Maybe uh, somebody in the audience knows and can tell us uh, what they use, and we can help you out. That'd be great. Let us know in the subreddit. In fact, does Noah do something like that? Well, I think he, he uses... Really desktop so much, right? I don't know what he uses. I, no, he does. I, they might use TeamViewer. I'm not sure what they use. I don't know. I'd have to ask him. 
so speaking of the subreddit, which would be a great place to give us your recommendations for tools like this, uh, that's where our uh, our next and last question comes in this week. He says, hello, Alan and Chris. I've been listening to TechSnap since the early days, and I love the show and credit it and last for rekindling my tech curiosity and eventually led to a career change to IT. Wow, that's cool. Anyways, I know Alan has talked about SSH key management in the past and using SSH key gateways. I bet Chris uses Dropbox somehow. Would you guys please remind and enlighten the audience on how you actually manage your keys across multiple clients and servers? Alan, I'd be surprised if you recommended, I would be surprised if you didn't recommend your co-author Michael Lucas's SSH mastery book. I have it, and I'll eventually get around to reading it. I swear. Right now, I just started reading FreeBSD Mastering ZFS, or Mastery ZFS. Congrats on publishing and the new commit rights. And Chris, thanks for all your hard work. I like the new last format a lot. It's more concise and still top quality. Keep up the great work. Thanks again. Jimmy Eggs. So what do we have here for Jimmy Eggs? you want to cover any of that, Alan? Um, so what I actually do, uh, <laughs> which isn't necessarily what I recommend other people do, yeah. um, I have a couple of different keys. I have one for FreeBSD, and that's encrypted and exists on two machines and only exists on those two machines. Um, you know, that's a key I'd rather lose than... Uh, someone get a hold of if you know what I mean I'd rather I accidentally didn't have access to it anymore rather than mm, yeah. have more copies of it and mm-hmm. somebody be able to get it mm-hmm. um, and then there are the you know the keys I use for scale engine and so on um, part of what we do for scale engine we have a Fudu uh, which is that security device we've talked about before um, so I have a key that gets me into the Fudu and then the Fudu has the key that gets me into the yes, boxes. this is cool. So everything everything I connect to, I actually have to go through the Fudu to mm-hmm, get there, mm-hmm. uh, and that provides the extra step of security, and it can prov- uh, integrate with two factor authentication and all kinds of interesting things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, I basically have my SSH key on two USB sticks, and is this it here, Alan? Is this the right one right here? Yep, that's it. Okay, I'll put a link in the show notes for it. Uh, yeah, um, it's a Polish company. It's the Paweł Dodek, the guy that ported ZFS to FreeBSD mm. and wrote the Geli disk encryption layer wow. and built the auditing framework in FreeBSD. All right. And he took all of those things and bundled them together into a security appliance uh, that can audit SSH, um, VNC, remote desktop, yeah, RDP, MySQL, yeah. Oracle, whatever way you're going to access servers in your company. And you force all of your administrators, users, and contractors to go through the Fudu to get to the servers, and it records a video session of everything they do. It supports MySQL too. Yeah, uh, so it'll log what you know commands somebody executes. Uh, we needed this badly at uh, a Canadian government uh, thing that we do support for, where the new sysadmin accidentally broke the database and wouldn't admit it. Whereas if we had had video of him doing it from the Fudu, we could have been like, mm-hmm. you know, fess up. Wow, uh, no kidding, right? Uh, we also the Fudu was critical when we got a uh, a student for the summer for our company, and it's like, well, I, you know, we need him to have access to all of our servers, but we'd really like it if we recorded everything he did on video, and we could throw uh, turn his access to every machine off with the flip of one switch. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, other than that, I just have my keys on two USB sticks and connect them and decrypt them and use them. Uh, sometimes with SSH agent, sometimes not. Uh, Usually when I don't, I'm like, I wish I had because typing the password over and over again when the password is this long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not quite as cool as Devin Teske who has a password that's like this long and uh, he can type it from memory every time. Yeah, I, I've, I you know, know for me, I've tried a few things. I, I've tried storing well, them in he, last. He learned his, his trick for memorizing super long passwords from the NSA. So. Well, that's not bad. Yeah, I couldn't see. I couldn't do that. 
Yeah. I've tried LastPass. Well, apparently there's a trick, but anyway. Um, I've yeah. tried uh, storing them in Dropbox. But, you know, I'm actually... I, uh, Noah Dropbox convinced me... Yeah. Noah convinced me to use uh, to try it with YubiKey, and he did a whole segment on SSH authentication with YubiKey. I haven't mm-hmm. looked into it yet, but uh, episode 373 of the Linux Action Show, he covers using a YubiKey. And, you know, for him, I watch him do it. When he goes to log into his SSH server, he just touches his YubiKey, and, and all this magic happens in the background, and boom, he's logged into his server. And I'm like, that is yeah. so cool. I know uh, uh, another FreeBSD developer, what he has is uh, the Duo Security Multi-Factor Authentication. <laughs> so he logs in with his SSH like normal, mm-hmm. and then his phone gets a thing Neat. and he has to accept and then he gets connected. Neat. And he bought the Apple Watch so that he stops having to take his phone out of his pocket and just touches his watch to allow his SSH session to continue. What? Oh, uh, WaffleMaker says he's been using Noah's tutorial. And actually, we heard from a lot of people that uh, use Noah's tutorial and it works great. So I think I'm going to try that too. So, uh, But yeah, you also mentioned the LastPass with the command line LPass thing. Yeah. And you basically store your SSH key in this encrypted form mm-hmm. uh, but ASCII armored as a secure note, and then you can access it from the command line and then just pipe it into your SSH agent. Yep, we have that linked in the show notes if you guys want to check that out. It's up on GitHub right now. Uh, So here is a little thing that's coming up, you guys, for the TechSnap program, is we're going to be doing a bunch of double recordings because of travel. And uh, we really need your emails and your subreddit submissions. So uh, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, and send your questions in, because we love having a good, healthy feedback segment when we have to record ahead. The news is so crazy these days. We have lots of news content, but your questions and stuff are are very much appreciated. And you can still submit stories on the subreddit, and we'll still be looking for them and filling out the roundup with those as well. Yeah. Yeah. you know, and that's why we get an angry email. But was like, why didn't you cover this story? It's like, because you didn't tell us you wanted to. So, thank you for the advice. We'll cover it next week. Yeah. So here's uh, so, so email over, us. So also be sure you check the calendar out over jupiterbroadcasting.com/slash/calendar yes. because uh, we'll be double recording and then off, not live a week, and then double recording, not live a week. But if you just listen on downloads, you're pretty yeah. much going to notice no change. If you watch okay. live, you'll notice some differences as we double record. And that just means the weeks that we are here, you get double the episode if you show up live. Yeah, so yeah, this week is double episode. Uh, next week will also be double episode, even though the one that comes out for download that week will be one we recorded this week. Uh, and then the 10th, uh, I'm away. So there will be a rerun, uh, an airing of one of the extra recorded episodes. Uh, and then the 17th uh, is right before both Chris and I leave, so we'll do another double then, mm-hmm. and that will allow us to play out those episodes while we're gone, yep. and we'll have used up our entire buffer. And the show should not miss a beat, and if you are nope. subscribed to the RSS feeds, you don't have to change a thing. It'll just keep on coming to you. And if you want to watch live, you just have the extra step of checking the calendar from time to time to see when we are going to be live for about the next month or so. As uh, we get through this, and then the travels are all done, and the convention season. No, is pretty the much travels over. are not done. Oh, I mean, for me, but luckily, the next two, the things I go to in October and November, yeah. are all Monday, Tuesday. So I'm gone Monday to Wednesday. I don't have. So I'll be back in time for the after Thursdays. this next trip in uh, in September. I don't have anything else scheduled for the rest of the year. So my my travels should be done, but I'm leaving my I'm leaving the option open. So you never right. know; something might end up in there, but I don't have anything scheduled. After this September trip, so I'm yeah, yeah, no more cons, no more fests. Yeah, I, well, I got uh, VBSD Con, uh, the ACM thing in Sweden, and then uh, EuroBSD Con, and then the Open ZFS Developer Summit, and the FreeBSD Zil- uh, Silicon Valley Vendor and Dev Summit. Yeah, and uh, boy, remember before we started the show, I don't think you traveled much. Nope, <laughs> I hadn't been anywhere, and then uh, I got we. I went to VSD Can in the. Uh, summer or the spring of 2012 yeah and enjoyed it so much 
they were like, we're definitely coming back next year. But like, why wait for next year? Let's go to the one in Europe. Yeah. So we submitted a talk and got accepted, and I had to get a passport, and I flew to Poland, and I was like, oh, these people are awesome. Yeah, it's a good I'm time. I'm going to go to all the things. Yeah. And then it's like, you know, Tokyo, uh, Malta, <laughs> uh, Bulgaria, Cambridge, uh, San Jose, Virginia. Wow. I don't Seattle, the, uh, the, uh, the, the times have changed, Alan. Yep. And now and you don't get sick that often either, which is nice. No, I'm, I have a good immune system. Yeah, yeah. Every now and then I get I get the plague badly. I get it sometimes, just awful from the cons. All right, so Wait, go over to the site. Also, well, yeah, between cons and, and kids. Uh, yes, virus yeah. minions, yeah. as you're called. <laughs> Very much so, especially when the school year starts, which is coming yep. up soon. Uh, so go over to the site and please send in your feedback and your questions. We'd love to get that all queued up so we have lots to read through because we're going to burn through all of it. And so, in fact, if you didn't hear yours read today, it's probably going to be in next week's episode. So go over to the site, click the contact page, and choose TechSnap from the dropdown. And, Alan, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, this is that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show, and some of these links came from our awesome subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com, like this first one. Microsoft has no plans to detail what is in the Windows 10 patches. Each update is going to be a black box, and it looks like it's going to stay that way. Microsoft has now released three, count them, three cumulative updates for Windows 10. These updates combine security fixes with non-security bug fixes, and so far... Microsoft has not done a very good job of describing the contents of these cumulative updates. While the security content is quite fully described, explanations of non-security fixes have been, well, completely lacking. Um, so, uh, Alan, I'm kind of curious. Apple is also notoriously bad for this. Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, uh, Microsoft's becoming Apple. We kind of like the fact that each one had, here's the vulnerabilities, here's the CVE numbers, here's the credit to the people that reported it, yeah, that it, one's really important. It's not just for the consumer's consumption, but it's also for the community at large's consumption. Yep. Uh, I think it's important. Uh, although, you know, this is, uh, in I particular, a, is for uh, the updates where, for end users, they're not optional. Microsoft forces them on you. Um, and, you know, maybe Microsoft is afraid that people are just going to, people avoid optional updates or they avoid non-critical security updates, so they yes, just don't want to uh, give them info. But well, yeah, if the updates are installed either way, I guess it doesn't matter if you know what they are. But it would be nice to know what they are, or you know, mm-hmm. especially in enterprise. This patch fixes this vulnerability. Do I have that patch already or not? Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, you have something from our friends over at Easy DNS for our next story yes. in the roundup. Uh, so they break down a bunch of the fud and talk about how DNSSEC actually works and why it's important. Uh, specifically, they uh, cite a bunch of articles uh, that raise questions about DNSSEC or spread fud including DNSSEC is a government-controlled PKI. Ooh, nice one. Because um, the, the keys that set whether, you know, the DNS is signed by are at the registrar for all the country-level, top-level domains. That would mean the government of that country has it. Uh, well, not necessarily. You know, obviously in Canada, CIRA uh, is a kind of non-governmental, but, you know, uh, they cite the example of, you know, I think five years ago, you know, Mobar uh, Gaddafi would have controlled the keys for Bitly. Because uh, it's not .ly, right? Um, but it's like, well, actually, DNSSEC would have just meant we would have, it would have been obvious if they did start tampering with the DNS, right? Uh, because 
the other thing is that you know with Dane or whatever, we use DNSSEC and publish the keys as a, a DNS record instead of having to get a certificate. If you know if you're the government of a country and you control the T, uh, TLD, you can just change the name server records at the registrar. Uh, to intercept the email or create the C name or text record or whatever required to verify ownership and get issued an SSL certificate anyway. We've seen that actually. So yeah, so it doesn't matter so much. Um, and so DNSSEC isn't any worse because of that. But the difference is that DNSSEC would make it obvious when it happened mm. uh, because you know it has the uh, the cryptographic signatures. And also, you just your resolver would start rejecting stuff. Uh, they'll say DNSSEC doesn't protect against ban in the middle attacks. It's like it depends a little bit on that because uh, you know if they come in in the middle of your connection to the uh, the registrar to get the which key to uh, check could possibly be a problem. But they talk about how that doesn't actually work like that, uh, or, or you know people saying there's a better alternative to DNSSEC. It's yeah, like, that's, uh, yeah. Show me because <laughs> there's not. You know, DNS curve has some issues and key pinning is not going to scale and etc. Uh, and they talk about, you know, Dane versus certificate authorities, uh, you know, uh, DNSSEC bloats record sizes. Well, you know, bandwidth is cheap nowadays. Um, you know, it's, it's not making the records that much bigger to have a signature. And, you know, the trade-off is, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I say DNSSEC has uh, cryptographic weaknesses. It's like, well, actually, <laughs> not so much. You know, just make sure you use strong enough keys. You know, the whole point of this is that we made the keys so they could be changeable size. Or, you know, maybe we just switched to ED25519, which in our interview with uh, a developer from OpenSSH, they explained that uh, one of the main advantages to ED25519 uh, for coming up with keys is that it provides better protection against weak random number generators. So if you had like that, you remember that Debian problem with SSH? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If, if, uh, the same thing happened, but with ED25519 keys, the keys would still be a lot stronger uh, than the RSA ones ended up being, or DSA, or whatever the uh, Debian SSH problem was. But hmm. They also talk about, you know, uh, DNS-based authentication is architecturally unsound. It's like, well, we've been using it for 20 years, and it's worked out pretty good. Uh, you know, and... And people saying uh, DNS sect is unnecessary because of all the secure crypto on the internet. It's like, well, mm. if we've learned anything, is that we can't count on most of that, and that uh, defense in depth is better. Mm-hmm. You know. So anyway, if That's you've ever wanted a bunch reply, of it a, seems. yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you, uh, you know, they say uh, Bank of America shouldn't rely on security through obscurity for access control, which is a, a great one. Um, so yeah. Um, the important thing is that if you're interested in DNSSEC, you can read over this and see basically the arguments on both sides uh, for each of the items. And basically the point is that DNSSEC is the best thing we have and it works. Uh, if you actually need to set up DNSSEC, I recommend Michael W. Lucas's book, DNSSEC Mastery. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right, this uh, But it really does cover everything you need to know to set it up. This next story, it just rubs me the wrong way. Researchers catch AT&T injecting ads on free Wi-Fi hotspots. Uh, they were tampering with HTTP traffic to serve ads up to the users. Now, uh, after the story ran, immediately AT&T tried to contact ours and said, oh, we just ended it uh, for now. Um, we trialed an advertising program for a limited time in two airports, Dulles and Reagan National, and the trial has ended. 
This is according to a spokesperson talking to ARDS. They say the trial was part of an ongoing effort to explore alternate ways to deliver free Wi-Fi service that is safe, secure, and fast. Well, if you want it to be safe and secure, stop tampering with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, you know, it, see, it's what they're trying to, what they didn't say, we're trying to figure out how we can make money off free Wi-Fi. That's it's exactly like, it. Well, that you know, is exactly you put it. One ad, you can put one ad on the Captive Portal page, and then you get the hell out of my connection. If you follow the money, there's this company, I don't know how you say it, it's like Ragappa or something, it's R-A-G-A-P-A, and their whole, bi- their whole gig is monetizing hotspots. And so AT&T was working with this company to do this ad injection. This is like their whole gig. And, uh, and AT&T was trying to figure out how to monetize free wireless, I guess. And some people say this may actually run uh, afoul of FCC rules too, so there could be some some issues there. But, uh, but I would say, in the end, if the right way to monetize it is to get the little chops and stuff to pay for the Wi-Fi, mm. doesn't cost that much. Yeah, everybody uh, chip in. And well, it's just because you know you will sell more. Uh, you know what they've done at the Toronto airport. Uh, I've seen it at a couple other airports too is that they replaced the crappy plastic seats and everything with nice, comfortable seats at big, high tables with power outlets, yes, yeah. USB ports, mm-hmm. and actually there's an iPad at every seat <laughs> uh, that you can use to order food or browse the Internet. Jeez. Uh, and, uh, and in that case, uh, when you're browsing the Internet on it, they do inject a, an ad via the browser software uh, that's more reasonable local local application doing that so here's what so basically what you're saying is but they once, also provide wi-fi because if i'm sitting here with this thing in front of me with pictures of food yeah. scrolling by i'm going to click and buy the food well, and, and swipe my credit card as possibly a merchant in that airport once you know you can rely on ubiquitous wi-fi infrastructure you might start taking advantage of that as a business so it starts well it's more that you take advantage of the fact that yeah. the people are going to sit where the wi-fi is yeah, yeah. and then your ad advertising food or just the smell of your food exactly. is or they're going to be like i need a drink like uh because it's after security at the airport as well they actually even sell a bundle at the restaurants of stuff to take on the plane with you hmm. it's like oh i want a nice sandwich to take on the plane with me instead of you're eating making, airplane Alan, you're food. making me hungry or you're, you're you know they took away my water at security so i would like just a nice bottle of water to take on the airplane with me yeah seriously yeah. interesting uh okay you know, there there are better approaches than just like messing Mm -hmm. with my Wi-Fi. Oh, and I was going to say, just last ending thought on that, by the way, is I get so annoyed that these carriers, whenever they get caught doing something creepy like this, it's always, oh, we were just trying it, now we're done. We're just trying it. And so they never get in trouble because, ah, we're just trying it. No, it's no big deal. We're just trying it. I I was just trying murdering people. Yeah. Uh, I've decided I don't like it so much. Last night, I was, all those houses I broke into, I was just trying uh, cat burglary. I don't, I don't actually want to do it. (laughs) Just trying it. All right. So tell me about this nine-year bug that got fixed, Alan. Uh, it's just uh, um, so package source is something kind of like the port stream FreeBSD, okay. uh, but it's on NetBSD, so it works on every architecture, and it's actually agnostic to operating systems. So you can actually use package source on uh, like a Lumos and SmartOS and other um, Open Solaris variants. It works on you know NetBSD and FreeBSD and so on. It works on Linux. It works on like some weird <laughs> older uh, Unix platforms from like HP and so on. <laughs> okay. Uh, it runs on Macs, whatever you want to run it on. Uh, so basically, it's a, a package system with a ports-like setup, but agnostic to what kind of processor you have, whether that's you know ARMS, MIPS, or x86, okay. or nice. like an old Japanese cell phone. <laughs> okay. um, and <clears throat> it has um, uh, every operating system. Anyway, uh, turns out there was a 
problem with the way they were packaging up uh, OpenSSH, and they were disabling the privilege separation flag and not realizing it for the last nine years. Uh, so one of the extra mitigations in OpenSSH just wasn't turned on. It wasn't actually a security problem. It just means the extra protection has been available for the last nine years and just wasn't being turned on. Hmm. And it's fixed now. There you go. Nice to know. So, uh, you know, it turns out that problems can be introduced not just in your software, but also in the packages generated by your operating system. Oh, man. Okay, Alan. This next story is pretty cool. Is this a data center that doesn't use air conditioning? Yes. Uh, so this is uh, OVH data center in Canada, and they say they use 30% air cooling, uh, so that's just you know fans and whatever, and 70% water cooling to equal 0% air conditioning. Hmm. So they optimize for airflow. Mm-hmm. They have fresh air passing in front of servers. Air heated by the components is evacuated at the back of the servers, and hot and old, or hot and cold air are separated. Yeah, they use liquid cooling. Out, cold out. And then, uh, yeah, so liquid cooling, they actually have, you know, radiators, and they, they run the pipes like you would do for, like, a high-end gaming computer in each of the servers. Uh, this is slightly different than the way the, the data center IMAT does it. What they do is... Um, Kind of, kind of like that graphic uh, with the cold air, hot air. But basically what they do is outside, they pump cold water out of a well in the ground, uh, run it through a chiller during the summer because in the winter the groundwater is cold enough, but in the summer it's not. So they get the water really cold, and they run it through pipes into the building uh, because water stays cold longer than air. Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so it runs in pipes under the raised floor, and then fans blow, that, uh, blow air over the, um, the cold water pipe and it makes the air cold, right? And then so air, cold air comes up from the uh, perforations in the raised floor mm-hmm. at the front of the rack. And that cold air then goes through the machines, cools them off, and comes out as hot air at the back, where it cool. then gets sucked up by uh, vents in the ceiling and pulled out of the building. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, they use what's called chilled water cooling, but they aren't actually having to water cool the individual machines. OVH is taking it a step further and uh, it means their machines run cooler, which means they can run, uh, they can pack more tiny machines into the same rack, right? Normally, uh, you end up, you know, there's only so many machines you can stick in a rack because it generates too much heat, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're using a bunch of 1U machines where the fans can't be as efficient on like a 2 or 4U. Mm. Um, and so they solve that problem with water cooling. And they color the things so you can tell which water is cold and which water is hot. Yeah, just, they actually look like they have a pretty cool facility. They have several very cool facilities, actually. Yeah, <clears throat> and they do them in pods, and uh, you basically see over the years, they've actually scaled down their power utilization by 33%. That's really cool. Uh, neat, Alan. Good find. Nice find, hmm. sir. Nice find. All right, There's so... Some, some people might be interested in seeing. GitHub's having a bad time. GitHub is being attacked again as Chinese developers are forced by the police to pull their coach. Uh, GitHub's tool to circumvent the Great Firewall is being targeted by the Chinese law enforcement. We've actually been covering this on and off for how how long now, Alan? Well, there was a denial of service attack a while ago. Yeah. Uh, but then there was another one just this week. Yes. Yeah, but this is sort of, it seems like it may, maybe all is connected to me. Like, it's, it's yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, yes. And ours also suspects it's all likely connected as well. Uh, yeah, so last time what they did was injected in the people that were behind the Great Firewall of China um, would make uh, some a couple of files get loaded on, like, everybody that went to the Chinese search engine. Mm. The page would include a bunch of JavaScript files from GitHub, and it basically made every machine behind the Great Firewall of China be part of the a bot right. in the denial right. of service. Right, of, right, right. Um, <laughs> That's awful. And then... Uh, in this one, it was done differently. Apparently, something with Sox 5 proxies and stuff. Uh, 
Ars has all the details, but uh, you might have noticed GitHub being a bit spotty the other day, and that's why. That was why. I can't. And, you know, it's an interesting thing to consider that you know lots of companies actually depend on their GitHub for everything. Uh, oh yeah. With the nature of Git, you can do quite a bit yeah. while GitHub is offline. Yeah. Um, but doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you're using it properly. Uh, all right. So how can this be the first case of cyber flashing? How can this possibly be? But uh, this is the headline from the BBC. Police are investigating yep. the first cyber-flashing case. Uh, that's right. The victim received two pictures of an unknown man's penis on her cell phone via AirDrop. <laughs> oh, yes. wow. So iOS has this AirDrop thing where basically you turn it on and you can use it to, like, people I know or anybody. It's your, like your then, contacts or anyone. Yeah. yeah. And by default, and then, by the way, it's contacts only. Or even off all the way. Isn't yes. It? yes. Anyway. But when you turn um, it on, by default, yeah. it's contacts only. Yeah. But, you know, if somebody you just met at a meeting or something and they want to send you a file, you set it to anyone and they send you a file. You forget to turn it back to contacts or off, and then you get on the train, and then your phone vibrates, you pull it out, and there's penis. I'm actually kind of amazed it doesn't happen more often. And by the way, this is truly, I think, one of the best features of iOS. I mean, I realize it can be used for bad things, but in a production standpoint, when you have a couple of people that are shooting video on on, on an iPhone and you need to get all back to one device for, for editing... You just have everybody stand next to each other, and the, the iPhones discover each other. Then they set up a, a, a Wi-Fi network, a mesh Wi-Fi network amongst each other, and do direct transfer over 802.11ac or whatever it is, like the highest Wi-Fi. And I can get like hundreds of megabytes of video files transferred in seconds without having to establish any kind of network or anything like that. And the other thing that's super cool is if you, if you, if you put Wi-Fis or if you put iPhones from end to end to end, they will establish a mesh network, and you can actually traverse a mesh network of iPhones. And it's a really cool technology that, that, that like, is not being used by anything except for apparently sending penis pictures. It's like, yeah. I don't even know if people know the feature exists. <laughs> well, I, I remember using the bump feature on Android quite a long time ago yeah, where yeah. we used the NFC rather than Wi-Fi. Right. So it wasn't as strong. Well, that, uh, so it's like you actually just like physically clap two phones how, together. Though, how are they and it on would transfer the, like your business card to the other person's but phone. how are they possibly on the same network when they're driving down the road? Because you have to be on the same network at first to make the connection. Like you have to be on the same well, LAN to make you, that connection. No, I think it's just they, they find each other over, over Bluetooth? Wi-Fi. Oh, maybe. maybe. I think I, it's Wi-Fi. I thought it was, okay, I thought it was packet discovery over the Wi-Fi. Maybe, I don't know. I think it's just packet discovery of anybody who's out there near you. Mm, okay. Uh, but yes, apparently there's also instances where people uh, driving down the highway, uh, you know, <laughs> if you're in the passenger seat, just goofing around and all of a sudden, you know, oh, so-and-so is coming rain. Just like, well, penis pick. <laughs> you know I what? Guess. I don't. I don't get the fun in that. But Alan, you know what's happened can. to us, and this is, this is becoming more and more common, is there's a stretch of freeway that I'm driving down these days that uh, has um, an Amtrak that runs along it. And once you've ridden the Amtrak once, you get on the Amtrak Wi-Fi, and we're sitting here driving down the road, and our phones are now connecting to the train's Wi-Fi that's riding across. So I'm sitting here driving, and all of a sudden I notice my, my connection stops to my, to, my, to my stream, and I'm like, what? And I look at it, I'm on Wi-Fi, and I look at the Wi-Fi network, and I'm on Amtrak. And I look over, there's an Amtrak train, and I'm sitting here driving along the freeway. They're like, wow, okay. So I can see how, like, everybody, if anybody else in that stretch of freeway with me had also been on the Amtrak, all of a sudden we're on the same Wi-Fi network. Yep. While we're on the road. Yep. That's pretty crazy. I feel like that probably screws with your streaming because then you get the captive portal or something yep. to accept the Amtrak. I won't yep. look at porn while I'm on the train because yep. that will just gross out the person sitting beside me. Yeah. Um, and, and then it breaks your streaming. It's like, it kind of seems like the phone should... Uh, should be like, oh, uh, I see this Wi-Fi, but I'm not going to use it yeah. until you log in. I will tell you, hey, you should log in. But. Yeah, 
Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. Hey, you know, well, this, it'd be great when we have multipath TCP too. This uh, this next uh, roundup link here from Apple is actually a security update that has more detail than a Windows 10 update. Look at this thing. Yes. Well, so maybe <laughs> Windows will eventually publish these at least on like their TechNet or whatever for the enterprises that are using Windows I hope 10. So. I got to ima- I got to imagine. It happens for everybody. Yeah. But we do have some OS 10 Yosemite updates for 10.10.5 and uh, they are they include updates for Apache uh, and uh, Apache Mod PHP, Apple I, Apple ID login, Apple Graphics Control. This is a major update. The Bluetooth stack is getting an update. Holy smokes! Boot Pete, whole cloud kit, everything is basically getting an update. Cortex yeah, and uh, importantly, they have the CVE numbers for everything. And yeah, look uh, at them documenting all this. And a couple times you can see uh, they have the name of the researcher who found it. Look at that, the Yahoo Pen Yeah, Vesti yeah, look at that. That's, That's really the nice. important part. This. Is as essentially part of the social contract for security research. We're actually seeing Apple step up a little bit. That's good. Now, here's the crazy thing. This is basically everything in the operating system. Every single thing in the operating system in this update is getting a fix. This is a huge update. This, uh, this if you run Yosemite, you must install this update. I'm going to go get this update for you. It's, it's uh, uh, version 10.10.5. Uh, get that if you're on Yosemite. Everything from the core components of the operating system, everything. Also, supposedly, some mitigations for Thunderstrike are in this uh, update. Yeah, importantly, um, this is probably the, uh, and the end of the embargo on all these. So we'll see news about a lot of these CVEs coming out soon as the researchers can now publish their information. Yeah, there's, you know, one of the reasons why this looks so big is they're not just updating all the Apple technology like the uh, Quartz Composer Framework and Quick Look and those things. They're also updating all of the open source Apps yep. that ship with it, like Perl, Python, and uh, Postgres. And I, I don't like. Do they use Postgres in the desktop, or is that just Apple servers also tend yes, to inside? Correct. Yeah. Wow, that is a massive freaking update. You know, the other thing I like is uh, for information about Apple product security uh, PGP keys. See how to use the Apple product security PGP key. That's nice too. Yes. Well, uh, you know, they're they're realizing that you know people expect that you know mm-hmm. if you use FreeBSD, then yes, every security note you get is signed by the FreeBSD security yep. officer. Yep. And, you know, you can depend that this, because uh, otherwise I could send you a fake security advisory saying, hey, download and install this patch. It will make your system secure. Also, the other thing I like. Against everybody except me. I, the other thing I like is in the very first paragraph right here of this security announcement, they have a link that you can click to say, if, if you want to give us a security disclosure and it's this product, this is, these are the, this is the area you contact. Yes. That's nice, uh, too. It's, it's important that every company publish, you know, how you tell us how to send stuff yeah. when you find it. Yeah. That's actually a complaint we've gotten is I don't know how to report to this company that they have. Well, a flaw. Um, each country does have a, a computer emergency response team, CERT, uh, and you can report to them and then they can contact the companies. There you go. Uh, some researchers do it this way also just to isolate themselves from the company yelling at them or trying to sue them or something. Uh, but it, it can, you know, this way it's... Uh, quasi-governmental agency that's contacting you know sony who wouldn't accept your email or whatever the only thing that's unclear with me and i don't know apple maybe does this differently i don't i, I don't know if they're updating the previous operating systems like the last one are they updating yeah. 10.9 too with this stuff because it's here it says the apache fix is available for mavericks and yosemite so some of these some of these fixes are going out to mavericks now, i'm guessing if it's uh some of these are yosemite like only apple though. server then they'll fix it or some of it could be that the bug wasn't introduced until yeah that's true too yeah, yeah, but like here's one. There's a Bluetooth fix. They're only making available for Yosemite. A malicious application may be able to determine kernel memory layout. Now that could be something that's only in Yosemite, or that could be in Mavericks. I don't know. Yep. I just feel a little uneasy about that. 
I don't, I don't, I don't quite. They could have done a better job. I feel like they still need to spell out what their patch policy is for previous OSs, and maybe if somebody knows, they could submit that to the subreddit because I would like to see it. Uh, in fact, speaking of the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com is where you can go to submit stories for our roundup, community feedback, discussion pieces, anything you think maybe we should be talking about. Put it in there. That's where we take the temperature of the community to see what you guys want us to talk about. We also want your questions. TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or just click that contact link and then just choose TechSnap from the dropdown. And Mr. Jude, we will be live next week, um, but we're going to be early. We're going to be at 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, which is what? Your time and etc. cetera. Uh, that'll be the... What time are we start? I think we're starting 11 a.m. JB time. Yes. So, uh, yeah, Sorry, I thought you said 11.30. That's why I was confused. So yeah. that's 2 p.m. Eastern, yeah. uh, which is... That's the one I don't know. It's 1600 UTC. Okay. And jblive.tv. No, 1800 UTC. Sorry. Okay. jblive.tv or go to slash calendar and then you don't have to worry about the math. And uh, you can also just grab the RSS feeds and don't worry about all our crazy recording shenanigans and just get every single episode when it comes out every week, Friday mornings usually, or Thursday late evening if you're on the Pacific uh, West Coast. All right, Mr. Jude, anything else we need to cover in this week's episode of TechSnap? Uh, nope. All right. Then I'm going to consider this one all done. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>